So this is John chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam so that the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am that man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. And he replied, well, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Going on to verse 18, the Jews still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. You see, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Good morning. It's great to see everyone and uh, a few new faces as well. It's great to have you as part of uh, everything that we hear, are here at Riverside. Um, what, some of you will know that I have various fascinations in life and uh, one of them is my fascination with the eclipse. And uh, some of you will also remember back in March, we had, we didn't get a total eclipse here in Birmingham, but we had a partial eclipse. And somebody sent me a photograph, uh, quite a nice photograph. It's, it doesn't quite show up here as well as it is on the, on the frame we've got, but um, of, of, the, of that eclipse uh, from somewhere in the UK. And uh, as I say, it wasn't that impressive, but it still got a little bit dark. But it's a reminder really of the world in which we live in, that we live in a dark world and this light um, has a big impact. And it's until the very final seconds of a total eclipse before it actually goes finally dark, such is the brightness uh, of the sun. And uh, here's what Charles Finney said. Charles Finney was a great revivalist, great evangelist in the 1800s. And he, made, he said this, he said, the world is in great spiritual darkness and Christians under God are to enlighten it. And the world is in great spiritual darkness. We live in a world that is full of deception 
Uh, people believe all sorts of things, all sorts of false things about themselves, about others, about God, about the world around them, about the purpose of life. Um, we live in a world that is full of bitterness and unforgiveness, where there is conflict and there is strife and there is wars, and we, we remember the pain of that um, even today. Um, it's a world that is full of rebellion against society and against authorities. It's a world that's full of pride and self-centeredness at every single level of society. Um, I read this recently, it said, we are super connected through mobile phones and social media, yet super self-centered. Um, people stumbling themselves in life, or people stepping on others um, to get places. A world full of pain and of poverty, of abuse and injustice and shameful deeds, um, where the powerful manipulate the powerless. A world that has become full of addiction, again at every level of life, whether prescribed, legal, highs or illegals, uh, whatever it would be, to numb the pain uh, of life. The world is in great spiritual darkness and Christians under God, claims Finney, are to enlighten it. And one of the reasons we gather to pray uh, every month as a church is to pray that that light would go out uh, in our church, in our workplaces, in our community, across our world. And I encourage you, 7th of December, first Monday of every month, to gather together to pray so that that light would shine um, in power. John chapter 9, that uh, we've just had read to us by Tim, speaks into uh, this in three perspectives, um, I think. Uh, the first, it speaks into a world of darkness and says the light of the world has come. Secondly, it speaks about day and night, um, and he talks about working while it is still day, and that speaks of opportunity that we have. And the third perspective is about sight and blindness. And Jesus uses this instance of the healing of the blind beggar to make a, a spiritual point and to give some insight uh, into our lives. So the first of those I want to look at is light and darkness. So Jesus had said the chapter before in John chapter 8 verse 12, he said this, he made this incredible claim that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here in John 9, uh, he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And as we follow Jesus, that light shines in us as we are light to others. And so Matthew records Jesus saying that you are now the light of the world to the disciples. Take this light and let it shine. Let your deeds shine before others that people will praise uh, my Father in heaven. Uh, I was away over the summer, um, one of the weeks I was away with uh, two of our two, our two lads, Ross and Alex, and uh, there was, was one night where Ross decided that we were going to download this game on his tablet. It's a, it's a great uh, digital game called Pandemic, um, and basically various viruses take over the world, and you've got to fight these viruses. They're set loose, um, and in many ways the virus is like the darkness uh, in our world. And it, uh, it multiplies, um, it uh, spreads, and it goes very quickly, and we were starting to panic. So much so that Ross was even talking in his sleep about this game afterwards. He was so stressed by this thing. Anyway, the challenge is to work as a team, to fight it, to halt it, and to eradicate each of these viruses. And therefore, to do that, you have to stay very focused, you have to stay alert, because new ones are being introduced all the time, and you have to cooperate together. So it's a great game of working together in order to overcome uh, the viruses. And that is much like the battle that we have in our world of darkness. But the, the difference is that actually not only does the spiritually harmful virus in our world spread, 
but actually the kingdom of light spreads likewise. That the light we have multiplies out. The light we have can spread like that. As Jesus said, it's like yeast in the, do- in the dough. A little bit in there and it spreads out. It's like faith of a mustard seed becomes the big tree. It too multiplies uh, like that. Back in the days of Noah, we read in Genesis chapter six and verse five, there was real darkness uh, in the world. It describes it as this, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. It was a desperate, desperate time. And so God decides to put an end to things with the great flood. But he rescues Noah and his family and the animals, the creatures. Um, And it says of Noah that he was righteous. That as God looks across this world, that Noah seems to be the only flicker of light that he can see. Okay, a, a little flame, and he decides he's gonna rescue that flame of light. And so Noah and his family are saved from the world. But he also rescues them, rescues them for the world. So they're rescued from the world, but they're then called to then rebuild uh, a new world, as it were. And likewise, you and I have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, and we've been brought into the kingdom of light. And as a Christian, you've been rescued from the world, but you've also been rescued for the world. That we're to go back into the world and make a difference. We're to multiply that light together with others in every realm of everyday life, in every part of our front lines that we find ourselves in. And if you want to be somebody who follows Jesus, who wants to be a disciple of Jesus, then there are issues of our character that we work on with God, but also we need to have a kingdom of light mindset for every situation that we find ourselves in. So if I'm in education, how do I bring light into education? How do I bring light into the financial sector? If I'm a banker, how, do I, how can I be a kingdom banker in a, in a, in a profession that has lost so much um, credibility um, in the past years? How can I bring light into the media? How can I bring light into the arts? How can I bring light into my community? my sphere of influence? How can I bring light into the health service? And uh, I heard a woman over the summer called Sarah, and she worked up in uh, Warrington with the NHS. She was a a clinical, uh, a chief clinical officer up in Warrington, and she took on the role of turning things around um, in the the job she was given uh, with this. They had a 30 million pound deficit and they were known locally as the basket case of the Northwest. It was a pretty dire situation that she came into. Everybody blamed everybody else. But through her leadership, through her engagement with people, through her vision of excellence and a culture of enablement, valuing patients as partners, rather than just people you do things to, alongside bringing in values of honesty and integrity, openness, transparency, and what she described as courage without recklessness. Um, She turned things around over two years. She was told when she started, and I quote, forgive my language here, but she was told when she was started, the only way to do this is to grab them by the balls. She said, I don't treat people like that. I believe in repentance and forgiveness, etc." And she has led out of kingdom values and interpreted interpreted them into the language of the world. And so if you want to be someone that makes a difference in discipleship and grow in discipleship, 
And to have that kingdom of light mindset, you're gonna need some people around you. You're gonna need some people who will encourage you in that, that you can talk to about it, that you can pray about that, and some transformational relationships that will enable you to be encouraged and to encourage others. Another example, a street cleaner in Leeds. Every morning he would go into a church, and uh, a church that was open, and he would lean his brush and his shovel against the communion rail and pray that God would bless him and that his streets would be the cleanest in Leeds. Okay? He understood what it was to be in full-time Christian service as a road sweeper. And in the Bible, manual labor has a high calling. It speaks of God and the work of his hands. We know that Jesus was a carpenter or a builder. Paul was a tent maker. What does kingdom light look like in those situations? The second perspective I wanna look at is night and day. Uh, John 9, 4, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And so day is about opportunity. And night is about the loss of opportunity. There was no electricity in those days, so as soon as it got dark, that was it, everything stopped. And uh, he says, you have opportunity to do God's work while it is still day. Now in the scheme of things eternal, life is quite short. I know it doesn't feel like that. There's some days that feel they would go on forever and ever and ever. Um, But James puts it like this in James chapter four. He says, what's your life? He says, you're a mist that appears for a little while then vanishes. So I know when you put your anti-deodorant on in the morning, it's supposed to last 24, 48 hours. But um, as far as looking at the spray bit, it's there and then it's gone. So in the eternity, eternity, our lives are pretty short, says James. He always cuts the chase on these things. Now, apparently the average life expectancy is uh, now in the UK is about 80. 78 if you're a man, 82 if you're a woman, so I'm told, or so I've read. So if you were to squeeze all of that into one day, say seven o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, if you're 16 this morning, it's already 10 o'clock. Okay, if you're 21, it's 11 o'clock. If you are 30, it's lunchtime. If you're in your 40s, it's mid to late afternoon. If you're 50s, school's out. And if you're 60, rush hour is coming to an end. Now, I don't want to discourage you, but um, for half of you, statistically, it's even later than that. And for the other half of you, you're not going to remember what you're supposed to be doing when you get there anyway. So, but uh, although that might sound depressing, the good news is that while you've still got breath in your lungs, it's still day. We still have opportunity, and uh, we're to be doing the work of him who sent us. We're to be that light. Bringing God's light, however and wherever, Um, People's questions, people's questions of life and faith and helping people with those, bringing light. People's emotions, people that need comfort, people that need encouragement, people that need counsel. Uh, People's physical needs, helping put things right in people's lives, between them and God, between them and others, relationally, whatever it would be. And transforming those values and mindsets in our world that bring injustice, that allow injustice uh, to particular groups in society wherever we see that. And so the big question for you and for me is what opportunity do you have? What is your opportunity? And it will be very different for every single one of us. But what opportunities do you have? Who are you talking to about them? Who are you praying with about those opportunities? 
Uh, Ruth and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, scary, just uh, last week. And uh, we decided to wander past the church we got married in. And then we wandered down to the house that we moved into when we first got married down in Balsall Heath. We knocked on the door and we met the, the couple, a lovely older Asian couple that now live there. I've done wonderful things with the house. And we popped in and, and just sort of saw the old place. And, and that was great. And uh, as it just reminded me that day of, of what our vision was for that, that wedding, for that day, and we wanted that day to be something that would reflect God's light to all our friends and family. We had this vision really of like a 45 degree angled mirror at the front of the church that would reflect things of God to those people that don't yet know about God's light and God's love and this God that we know. And uh, there's a friend of, G- of, um, of Ruth that has, has regularly said, you know, that the impact that day had on her, that she's talked about it a lot. It was different to every other wedding she's ever been to and the things about it. But what opportunity do you have? What is the opportunity um, before you? There's an interesting aside in John chapter 9, verse 6, that I want to comment on. And uh, having said this, it says, Jesus spat on the ground. And he made some mud with saliva and he put it in the man's eyes. And he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And on the version that came up on the screen, the version that I read, it said in brackets, this word means sent, Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing the power of God. So why does Jesus send him to a pool called sent? And why does John highlight it? Well, partly, probably because Jesus was sent from heaven, but also I think he wanted the blind beggar to know that he was sent, or the man who's gonna become formally known as the blind beggar, um, to know that he was a sent man joining Jesus on his mission. So here's my modern day equivalent. Okay, I'm blind and Jesus comes to me and he, um, he licks two postage stamps, okay, with his saliva, and he sticks them on my eyes and he says, go to the post office and tell them I, you're sent. Tell, tell them to send you. And I get to the post office and I peel off these postage stamps and suddenly I can see. But not only can I see, I also know that I am a sent person. Um, as my uh, attempt at that. Okay? I have indelibly marked in my mind that I have been sent somewhere. Okay? And... You need to know, wherever you are on a Monday, that you have been sent. Okay? It will make a huge difference, wherever it is, whatever it is, however hard it is, however unlikely it is, that you are sent in that situation. And that is what Jesus wants each one of us to know. And so this guy can now see, and he starts to tell others, and he starts to, you know, this is amazing but suddenly encounters those obstacles, suddenly encounters that unbelief all around him that we can relate to. He can now see for the first time in his life and the first thing he realizes is that nobody else can, that everybody else is blind in a completely different way. Verse eight and nine, his his neighbors can't work it out. Is this the man? No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. The religious leaders investigate, but it's the Sabbath. Nobody should be doing anything on the Sabbath, so that's an even bigger problem for them. But this man gives a simple testimony, now I see. They still don't believe, so they turn to the parents. Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Verse 20, he's definitely our son. He was definitely born blind. But because they don't want to be thrown out of the synagogue, 
the community, they refused to be drawn on how it happened. Well, ask him yourself. Let he can answer for himself. He's of age. A classic example of peer pressure for adults. Okay, that fear of being persecuted when we put our faith on the line, when we, we put something of what we believe on the line. That fear of being ostracized that probably every single one of us can relate to at some point in our lives. Like, we've just held back. It's a real barrier for us, but where is our faith? Because you are the light of the world. Um, I came across this uh, quote, I don't know if it's helpful or not, on individuality. You laugh at me because I'm different. I laugh at you because you're all the same. And uh, there may be places in your place of work where you are the only person. You're the only uh, Christian in that environment. And that's a challenge, but yet we can be different. Charles Finney also said this, uh, a lot more challenging. If the world is not enlightened, it's the fault of the Christians. If the world is not enlightened, it's the fault of the Christians. Now the truth is the world is being enlightened by Christians. We see the statistics of what the church is doing across the country. We hear about how mission is going out across the world, but that challenge still remains. And Finney's argument is this. If the world is not enlightened, it's the fault of Christians because Christians have got the means of enlightening the world. We have the gospel. Okay, we have the means to spread it throughout the world. We have the true light in our hearts and the means to exhibit it to all mankind. It is a treasure within each one of us. Okay? We have an incredible privilege of having that light in us, but we also have an incredible responsibility to take it out to others. We have the means. Secondly, he argues, we have abundant opportunities to enlighten the world. We are stationed, there are Christians stationed across every sector of society and every part of the world for the very purpose of enlightening the world. We're commanded to share as we go and to hold up light in every single dark corner. He argues that the world is looking and expects Christians to enlighten them. Now you might argue with that. The eyes of unbelieving men and women are on us. Really? I guarantee when the church gets it wrong, when the church does it badly, the church's headlines. Yeah? People are looking. I can remember as a, as a young Christian, if I you know, went off somewhere you know, where I maybe shouldn't be going, my brother, not a Christian, would be the first one to challenge me about it. They were looking. And it's when you get it wrong that you notice. Okay? And the church is there to be a light. And, and the men and women are looking for that. They might not like it all the time, they might challenge it, but they are looking. If the truth is properly and fully exhibited, it will dispel darkness. Truth and light is powerful. He also says our main purpose is to enlighten the world. Christ has gone to heaven the light of the world, he's left Christians as his representatives to carry out, to live out the revelation of God as his ambassadors. We are to shine as lights in the world. It is our main purpose. Not only that, but we have the Holy Spirit. We can have any degree of spiritual illumination that we need to fulfill this task in bringing light because Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And he said that the Father is more willing to give the Holy Spirit than earthly parents are at giving good gifts to their children. 
Now, we all know with Christmas coming up how willing we are to give good gifts to our kids. God is even more willing to give the Holy Spirit to us so that we can enlighten our world. And so every needed aid is abundantly guaranteed. And you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Let it shine in your family, in your street, on your front line, in your workplace, in your community. And uh, the third aspect that I just want to touch on very briefly is sight and blindness. Because the real blindness in this encounter is revealed to be spiritual blindness of the religious leaders and of the crowd. Because everybody had been saying, this guy's blind. Was it, was it his sin that caused it? Or was it his parents' sin that caused it? And Jesus said it had nothing to do with that. He's got nothing to do with anybody's sin, his blindness. But he says, I'll tell you about a blindness that is to do with sin. Okay, spiritual blindness. Because when we sin, we step out of the light and into the dark. Okay, and we blind ourselves. Okay, we see the deception all around us. And he says to them, what are we blind to? Rhetorical really, isn't it? And he says, well, yeah, absolutely. Everybody else here is blind because you claim you are without sin. John says, if we, can, if we claim we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and we no longer walk in the light. And therefore to deal with sin in our lives, and there's only one way to do that through our forgiveness through Jesus so that we can see what we're meant to see. So we need to walk in the light. Um, otherwise, we will be spiritually blinded. I want to finish with a, a remarkable story. Uh, I think I got to mention a few weeks ago, but there's a, a video now. And uh, what, uh, this is not everybody's situation, I, I get that. But if, what you need to look at is how this guy was open to God using him. And how he was, um, how he saw the challenge he had as an opportunity and how he took the opportunity that he was given. Let's watch this and then I'll make a few final comments. Let's pray. Lord, you do remarkable things and we thank you that you have given us this light. Lord, we thank you for that treasure that is within us. Father, we pray that while it is still day, that we would see the opportunities that you set before us. And Lord, we pray that we would walk in the light so that we can stay in the light and that we can shine as lights. Let it shine ever brighter through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.